check out CS Instant Coffee, the makers of the world's best instant Arabica coffee. I took some with me backpacking this weekend. It was amazing. Check them out, csinstant.coffee, and use the code ADVENTURE at checkout for 20% off. Polar bears are humongous. They're 100% carnivore. You look like their preferred food, which is a seal, except you can't swim as good. And so that 30-mile stretch between the Seal River, uh, Churchill, which I did years ago, was terrifying. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, trying to help you find adventure every day in any stage of life. You're going to hear from explorers, adventurers, business owners, and anyone living their life a little more out of the box than usual. Hey folks, today we're talking to Stefan Casting about a thousand mile canoe journey in the tundra of Canada. Um, Man, a place that I don't know much about. I really encourage you to look at a map of this area. It is just mind-blowing how vast and how many lakes, how much water there really is. Uh, It's a lot like alpine forests just without the big mountains in the background. Just beautiful area with lots of dangers and lots of isolation. Stefan is really well known as a Brazilian jiu-jitsu teacher. Um, He's got 20-something million views on YouTube. You can check him out at grapplearts.com or on YouTube. He's also a full-time firefighter, and he received the National Medal of Bravery for helping save two trapped firefighters from a collapsed um, building that was uh, burning. Pretty badass dude. (laughs) And he also, in 2015, he was dying of kidney failure and ended up... uh, getting a transplant from his brother, and went out and did some adventures to celebrate that. So check him out, again, at his websites. It's all in the show notes. Or at the Strenuous Life podcast. He also hosts his own show. And speaking of podcasts, a reminder, again, we will not be doing a revisited episode this week. We are ju- we're going back to two episodes a week, Monday and Thursday. Um, if you want to listen to old episodes, just go through our log. We have 570-ish of them. So, all right, here is the interview. Where, where are you coming from today? Let's start with that. Uh, today you find me in Vancouver, British Columbia. So that's the west coast of Canada, a couple hours north of Seattle for any of the Americans listening. Oh, man. Beautiful place. Now, and now is that home or are you on a trip right now? No, it, it, it's definitely home. It's not where I was born. I was born in eastern Canada, uh, Toronto area, and then spent time in Montreal. But I came out here to the west coast about 20, 25 years ago to do – I'd figured out a way – how to, I had a small scholarship after finishing my uh, my undergrad, and I didn't know if I wanted to use it or not. But then I found a supervisor who was who thought that me going out into the Arctic for a summer to do some research to float down a river through the tree line on the Anderson River and essentially survey the plant communities as you go through from forest out into the tundra was a good idea. I was like, well, you know, I'm kind of sick of university, but. This sounds like a pretty good deal. I'll make it. I'll use up that scholarship, and I'll spend a summer out in the Arctic, and I won't actually have to pay for it this time. Somebody else will be subsidizing it. So any any chance I've gotten over the years, I've I've headed north. I really love the north, and so I along the way I picked up a master's degree in Arctic botany. I don't use it at all anymore, but the uh, it brought me out to British Columbia, and like so many people who come here, they tend to stay here. 
that explains in part the insane housing market and why some shack that some house that looks like it could be a crack shack and not on the beach and not on a mountain and not with a view is selling from well over a million dollars because everyone wants to live here or everyone wants to be a real estate developer here. Is that kind of a thing in Canada too? I just know here in the States, you know, it's like move out West for adventure. Um, you know, that's the biggest mountains, the biggest landscapes. Does it feel the same way in Canada coming from the East side? Yeah, it's very much. So it's, uh, I think the presence of large mountains opens the possibilities up for so many adventure sports. I mean, it's really quite possible to be downhill skiing in the morning, then, uh, whitewater kayaking in the afternoon, and then possibly lounging on the beach or kite surfing in the evening. And just the vertical, the vertical landscape gives you so many options. And especially for the adrenaline sports, adventure sports community. I mean, you name it, just like, I don't know what the equivalent of Vancouver and Whistler would be in the States. Maybe, um, I don't know, Boulder. Yeah. It's a hub for everything from mountain biking to BMXing to snowboarding to paragliding to, hey, dude, let's use a kiteboarding kite and we'll put it on a unicycle and then we'll try to do this mountain bike trail, this downhill run on a unicycle (laughs) with a mountain bike kite and we'll film a video of it and it'll get views on YouTube. You you definitely get those off the wall adventures in any place uh, like British Columbia or like Vancouver. Uh, We're in Denver, so we get... Just all kinds of like publicity sure. stunt style uh, adventures and stuff. But uh, man, you mentioned a, a master's degree in Arctic botany. Holy, I see. I got a degree in biology. I feel like I'm not really using it. Um, yeah, that that is two different worlds from where you are now in uh, the grappling martial arts. What the heck? How do you get from Arctic botany to basically a professional jujitsu like teacher? Well, it, it was a lot of struggling. It was a lot of casting about trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grow, you know, grew old. And I mean, ever since I was eight years old, I was absolutely sure from eight to 18, I was 100% sure I wanted to be a physicist when I grew up. That, that was it. Physicist, probably an astrophysicist. And I got to first year university and I just hated physics. You know, I love reading up. It turned out what I loved about physics was reading about all the cool stuff, but not actually sitting in front of a computer and crunching numbers all day, all night, every day, every week, all year. So that was a really harsh course correction. And throughout that whole time, I had been training in martial arts. And, you know, I thought about running a martial arts school when I got older and, you know, what was I going to teach and all that kind of stuff and training really hard and trying to push myself. So I always did those two things in concert. But then when I got to university and started studying physics and realizing that I hated studying physics, that's a crisis of identity. It's tough when you've locked something in as, you know, I am a mountain climber. I am a physicist. I am a whatever. You know, I I am a husband. (laughs) And then you get divorced or you realize that you hate physics or, you know, I don't know, you break your legs and you can't climb mountains anymore. That's a really tough transition. So I went through that at age 18 and cast about trying to find something else. And the other thing that I'd really enjoyed doing was spending time in the outdoors and Ontario, you know, there isn't as much extreme sport, you know, it's similar terrain. I don't know, Minnesota, maybe right. The boundary waters canoe area, yeah. a butts onto the Northern part of Ontario. And 
a lot of Ontario looks like that, you know, the rolling Canadian Shield and Little Lakes. And Ontario really is the home of canoeing in Canada. And I'd always done that. I'd always enjoyed it. I'd been on some shorter trips and I cast about and I figured that biology, which I'd hated in high school, I thought, well, maybe I should give it a try, right? It, there's the ecology part of evolution, there's the ecology part of biology, there's the evolution part of biology, there's the animal behavior part of biology. And these are all things that never ever get discussed in high school. In high school, biology is this is the kidney. The kidney consists of nephrons. Nephrons have four parts or memorizing the Krebs cycle yet again. I, I mean, you did biology. How many times did you have to suffer through the Krebs cycle? Oh, yeah, man. It was it was ridiculous. And yeah, it was just a totally different world at the university level than uh, the high school level, I will say. Kind of just mm -hmm. didn't even think about it in high school. You know, mm -hmm. it was just such an overview. Well, I, I mean, I'm getting off topic here, but I think a major component of why biology is so boring in high school is they don't talk about evolution, right? The, the, there's this rate, the to the topic of evolution has become radioactive because if you start teaching evolution in high school, you can pretty much in certain parts of the States guarantee there's going to be parents picketing or parents pulling their kids out of class and any textbook that makes a big deal out of it is going to get passed over and they're going to pick another textbook that doesn't make a big deal out of it because you know, they don't want to lose 10% of sales somewhere. But talking about biology without talking about evolution is like trying to talk about civil engineering and building bridges and building dams and building buildings without talking about gravity. Okay, so we've got to build this wall four feet thick. Well, why? Well, we can't say, but it's got to be four feet, feet thick, right? <laughs> it's, it's the underpinning of the entire study. It's the underpinning of the entire science because everything in biology is some way for a reason. And so that underlying thing, that underlying theme that holds it all together, I mean, in one sense, it's biochemistry. In another sense, though, it's, it's evolution. So I, I think that's why biology is so boring in high school. But yeah, so then I got into biology, and then I moved more into the ecology part of it. And this led to more you know, field trips in terms of going out and doing research and finagling, doing not marine biology, but lake biology and spending lots of time on rivers and lakes and out camping. And at the same time, I started doing some longer uh, solo canoe trips. That started very organically. And then I did some really long solo canoe trips. And then I got that master's, uh, that uh, scholarship for the master's, which brought me out here. So that's a very long-winded answer to where I am right now and why I'm here. So, so you had some experience with the canoe and then you got the masters, but it, it seems like you're doing the, uh, the martial arts full time. Is that true? I have two full time jobs, okay. maybe three, if you count being a parent, okay. uh, certainly the, the martial arts through grapplearts.com and selfdefensetutorials.com. That is something that's been going on for a long time. I started grapple arts in 2002. We've got you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of YouTube videos out, which is how most people find out about me. I've got a podcast going, got a, an email newsletter going. I've got a really in-depth blog just because I've been doing it for so long. And arguably, that is how I've ended up using my education is to have a sense of how to write. I'm not afraid of writing. So a lot of people are, are intimidated by having to write an email or write an article or write something that's going to be read. But I'm not. 
thanks to having written all those endless papers back in university. It, it was a big shift to not write academically, right? I, I take a look at the earlier stuff that I wrote, and it's it's so dry. So Yeah, you're not going to get a lot of readers writing no. uh, academically about this kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I think I've gotten much better writing. You know, there's much better message to audience match now. Uh, so the, certainly the, the martial arts um, teaching, and I don't have a school. I do all my teaching online or remotely. And the reason for that is my second full-time job is being a firefighter. So in Vancouver, in the Vancouver area, uh, firefighting schedules are four days on, four days off, or more correctly, five days on, three days off, but it's an eight-day rotation. And that would make running a school really difficult. I can teach next Tuesday day, but then the following Tuesday, I'd only be able to teach on the nights and it just, it would have gotten too complicated. So I started out with a small little online presence selling a single product and that did all right. That did all right. And then you know, as the, uh, as life moved on, it's it certainly grown. So yeah, I, I split my time doing the martial arts stuff and doing the firefighting stuff, but then doing as much outdoor stuff as I can squeeze in. So that big, long last trip, which is why you contacted me, that thousand mile trip from Mississippi. Saskatchewan to Arviat in Nunavut, uh, that comes after sort of a 20-year layoff of doing major solo trips because of kids. Right, The last big trip I did prior to that was a three-week paddle on the Nahani, and I want to say in 2003. So it's been a long time. And fortunately, you know, you get older, <laughs> your body breaks down a little bit. But at least having done it before, it took one big variable out of the equation. And that was the variable of, can I do this mentally? The question was now, can I do it physically? And that's always a valid question. But I remember the first couple long solo trips I did, I did all the preparation. I knew I had the physical skills. I knew I could light fires. I knew I could paddle white water. I could, knew I could portage and set up a tent in the driving rain. But there was always that niggling fear in the back of my mind. What if big, tough outdoor guy goes outside and is on week two of his, you know, eight week trip and, and he feels lonely and he wants to talk to people. And he, that, that, that was what I was concerned about. And fortunately that didn't happen. So I'd, at least I knew that, you know, that was one big question mark that I didn't have to worry about on this last trip. Now, now you mentioned, you know, a thousand miles canoeing trip after almost being off essentially off of big trips for 20 years do you wish you would have sprinkled some in there more or was this just the way life worked out and it's just completely impossible when you've got a couple young kids and uh, you're homeschooling them and then you know you go through a divorce hey honey sorry we're going through a bitter divorce battle right now but would you mind taking the kids for like oh i don't know two months while i go off <laughs> right. and pursue this adventure it's just not gonna fly no it's not so gonna I, fly at all on my instagram i actually posted about this because my one indulgence on this last trip was that i was uploading pictures and kind of a travel diary to instagram which then went to my blog as well and you know i didn't bring any books I didn't bring any fishing gear, despite it being amazing fishing. I didn't bring any movies on my iPhone. I didn't bring anything. But I did sort of blog and I did upload photos. And on one of the ones that I 
you know, I couldn't see the responses that I was getting from out in the bush because it was all one-way data transmission from using a very small satellite dish because you're super way beyond cell phone range. Oh, yeah. You're way outside of Wi-Fi and there, there's, you know, there's not even skip the dishes. There's no nothing. And uh, But one of the posts that I did really well, I talked about how this really was 20 years in the making. And one big part of that actually was making peace with the ex-wife. I mean, we're not together, but finally building relationships to enable something like this. And, and that's an important thing to remember whenever anyone does something amazing. I mean, who was it? It was Ross Edgley, the guy who swam around the UK. Uh, he, he, you try and get him on the podcast. He's a pretty amazing guy. Heck yeah. Um, I'll put in a good word for you. Okay. Yeah, please. I don't, do. I don't know him at all, <laughs> oh, okay. but I'll put in a good word for you anyhow. Uh, but oh, that would have been not possible if there hadn't, like how many people were in support roles for that trip, right? There's guys driving the boat. There were physiotherapists. There were probably nutritionists. There might've been doctors on call. Film crew, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like he a was, lot of people. he's definitely pushing the edges. He's pushing the limits of human performance, but it's not in a vacuum. And so, yes, it was me out there paddling and lining and dragging my boat up rapids and through the forest and, you know, staring into the teeth of an Arctic gale and all that. But I did have support. Somebody was taking care of my kids. Somebody was occasionally sending me satellite text updates about the weather that I could be expecting the next day. Right. It, it, and ultimately, bottom line, if something had gone terribly wrong, if I'd sank an axe into my femur or I'd snapped my tibia or I came down with some horrendous infection or disease, I could have pushed a little button on my Garmin inReach and within, well, let's say eight to 48 hours, probably gotten evacuated. And that's not a luxury that, you know, Shackleton had when he was right. <laughs> struggling across Antarctica. Probably wasn't a luxury you had 20 years ago. It, well, 20 years ago, I had something called an emergency location transmitter, which is about the size of a brick okay. with an antenna, and it had an on-off function. And you would turn it on, and basically you'd hope for a passing aircraft to pick up your distress signal. Then they would roughly try and triangulate where you were, and they would send out the Chinook helicopter, the Canadian, forces, Canadian Armed Forces helicopter from Edmonton would go out. And I don't know what you would pay for a Chinook helicopter, but those things are gigantic. And if I'm guessing, it'd probably be $10,000 an hour. So there, there were options, but they were very bad options. And 20 or 30 years before that, those things wouldn't have been affordable. And when we look at the people who were traveling these routes, even if they were just trappers going up there every year or natives coming down to trade, they didn't have any of these options. We live in... A, Part of the reason we're able to push so much harder is because the consequences of failure are, are somewhat mitigated some of the time, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if, if you come down with uh, an embolism at 7,500 feet on Everest, there's a chance, I don't know what the upper limit of the helicopters is now, but it's, you, know, there's a, you can get evacuated off of some of those camps by helicopter in a way that, you know, Mallory and Irving couldn't in the 1920s. Their only option was to die. So, yeah, so now you've, if, basically I'm a huge convert and huge advocate of the, the technology that's available. And uh, 
I've interviewed Will Gadd on my podcast. Will Gadd is the guy, the Red Bull ice climber guy who climbed Niagara Falls in the middle of winter. And he basically was saying, look, if, you, if you're going out in the backcountry and you're not carrying some kind of spot device or an inreach, you're a moron, right? It, it, you're being completely irresponsible because when you do break something, or even if you come across somebody else who's broken something, you know, forget you, you're, say you're willing to take the risks. You're willing to do, a, I don't know, a 50 mile hike in the backcountry uh, through rugged terrain, and you're willing to assume the risks. Well, what if you find, I don't know, a father and son who are there and the father snapped his femur? You can help the situation greatly by taking advantage of the technology that's available. You know, and like I said, I use the Garmin inReach. They don't sponsor me. I'm not a representative. I don't make any money. But those things are bloody amazing, right? They can send basic satellite text messages. You can send a message. And to my understanding, if I push the emergency button, somebody gets back to me and says, hey, what kind of emergency is it? And if I was to say, I don't know, uh, I've lost my tent, but I'm all right, then in theory, we could organize somebody to drop off a tent. I'd pay for it, of course. It'd be the most expensive tent I would have ever bought. But they can maybe drop a tent out of the sky on my head. Whereas if I say I've, I'm currently pinching my femoral artery <laughs> and uh, it's hard to type with one hand or I'm going to bleed to death, right. they can come get you. Right, right. And, and so... I've got a spot and I use it and yeah, for, I mean, it's like having a life insurance almost that's pretty stinking affordable when you, when you really factor in what your, you know, what, what the risks are. And I, yeah, I definitely take that with me anywhere I go. And now for you and your trip, man, you went, you went North by Northwest, I mean, Northeast up to um, the Hudson Bay and ha- I mean, when you look at, you, you said a word before that called Mississippi. And when I first looked that up, I'm like, Mississippi? No, no, no. That's not <laughs> it. I'm like, that's Mississippi. Yeah, we're not mispronouncing that. Mississippi. And when you look that up on a map, it looks like just an arbitrary point. And honestly, this entire checkerboard of lakes and, and, and kind of scrubby forests, how the heck did you choose that as a starting point? And how, I mean, where do you go? Is that part of something? It just looks like one of the blue spots on its giant, yeah, like I said, checkerboard of of lakes. Well, that's that's the amazing thing about the Canadian Shield, which, like like I talked about earlier, covers parts of Minnesota, lots of Ontario, lots of Manitoba, mm-hmm. and parts of northern Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan, you know, if anyone has ever driven through Saskatchewan. They've driven through the prairies. So it's flat as a pancake. It, it just, you know, the sky is beautiful, but the biggest hill out there, you know, might be 10 feet high. Yeah. But if you drive north, you eventually go from the prairies into uh, this Canadian Shield area in the boreal forest. And so years and years and years ago, uh, 25 years ago, I, I spent a summer guiding up there, uh, canoe guiding, teaching whitewater canoeing, guiding trips for Churchill River Canoe Outfitters. And the Churchill River Canoe Outfitters is on the Churchill River. The Churchill River is super important in the fur trade because it was a huge artery that went east to west. And basically for three, 400 years was an artery of travel for people catching furs. First, obviously, it was beaver fur, beaver pelt, because there was a hat craze in England and beaver pelts were going for a, a lot of money. So, you know, some varying combination of natives bringing beaver pelts down the river 
to voyagers heading upriver to go get the beaver pelts from the natives. They would travel on this river, and this river is really just a series of lakes for the most part, big lakes connected by rapids. And the amazing thing about the Canadian Shield is that there's just so much water. It's It was just recently deglaciated. By recently, depending on where I was in the trip, we're about 12,000 years to about 6,000 years uh, post-glaciation. That's not a lot of time for soil to develop. So you've basically got rock and then a little bit of dirt on top of it in places, and then moss and then spruce trees mixed in with other things. There's the occasional larch. But it's it's very much the classical boreal forest environment with tons of water. You, know, you look at some of the aerial photography there, or Google Maps, or you know um, just a topo map, and it looks like forty percent of the landscape is water, which helps explain why there are billions and billions and billions and billions of mosquitoes out there because there's no shortage of water for them to breed in. Uh, so yeah, Mississippi's on the Churchill River. So it's basically where the road north, if you wanted to get to Mississippi, you'd go to Saskatchewan, you'd hang a left or you'd hang a right, you'd head north, go as far as the paved road takes you. Then when the paved road stops, go for another hour on the dirt road. And then the last little town that's right on the, and by town, we mean like, I don't know, 150, 200 people. Uh, it's right on the Churchill River. It's actually a beautiful little town, the Churchill River. Even though it's far north, it's pretty warm. So if you ever want to learn how to canoe on a classic canoeing route, I can't think of a better place. And so that's where I started the trip. It was partially for logistical reasons. The uh, figuring out where to start was a little bit like, okay, what country do I want to see? And how far can I go in the 50 days that I have? Because I, I had 50 days, which was also sort of the upper limit of food that I could carry in my boat. Because I wanted this, for some strange masochistic reason, wanted it to be completely self-supporting. And so that meant you're, you're becoming constrained by the amount of food. And twice in my life I've pulled out of a town with 50 days of food. And that's a lot of weight to be carrying in a boat. How, how much is that? I mean, what is that? Can you visualize how big is that? Because that's, that's uh, I, I didn't. Two, I was going to ask you that. How much food did you carry? If you, you resupply, but you answered my question, and that's crazy. Well, you know those big waterproof packs, like the they're basically the big rubber bags with the roll down tops yes. and then straps. Mm -hmm. The better part of two of those. Oh wow! So wow. really heavy. Uh, I would say fifty days of food, probably carrying four thousand calories a day. So that's, if that was completely dry, that would be two and a half pounds of food a day. But of course, it's not completely dry. So I'd say somewhere in the vicinity of three, four pounds a day. My and goodness. so let's go with four pounds by the time you add in fuel. Yeah, it's a couple hundred pounds of food. No kidding. That's another person. Which is, which, is, which is one thing when it's in a boat. It's quite another when you're trying to get it across a portage that has, you know, not been traveled in for you know 50 years and there's been numerous forest fires go through and just lay waste to it now you're climbing over trees or or even just windfall areas where uh in recent years there have been a, a lot of extreme wind events in that part of, of the world basically it, it's like a tornado except it goes sideways and mows down all the trees so you'll come to areas where it's just it looks like a giant bulldozer or an army of bulldozers is driven along 
and flattened a bunch of trees. And what it is is supposedly is one of these sideways tornadoes. So portaging through that is a lot of fun. And by fun, I mean, <laughs> I'd rather gouge my eyes out with a blunt spoon than do it again. Yeah, that's beyond type. That's like type three fun. Uh, you just bypass type two. So we want to thank our sponsor, Athletic Brewing, for promoting a healthy lifestyle through making some of the world's best non-alcoholic craft beer. They make excellent tasting NA for healthy, active, modern adults. They use certified all-organic grains, and each can of non-alcoholic beer is only between 50 and 70 calories. They have IPA, golden ale, stouts, and tons of seasonal offerings. And recently, they actually just took home the gold medal at the U.S. Open Beer Championships for their Double Hop IPA. If you would like to get your hands on some, you can save 15% by using the code ADVENTURE at athleticbrewing.com. Athletic Brewing, the best tasting way to keep your promises. And I also want to thank our sponsor, CS Instant Coffee, for making this show happen. They make 100% Arabica Instant Coffee. They use compostable packaging, and each package makes about 20 ounces of coffee. So I'll take one of those with me on an overnight trip, and it makes two pretty good-sized cups of coffee. And it's an awesome feeling knowing I can just throw that in my backpack, find some hot water, and I'm good to go. Save 20% by using the code ADVENTURE at csinstant.coffee. You know, you you obviously prepare pretty well for this. You're you're in good shape um, logistically. I can imagine how just crazy this must have been to figure out. Um, but I'd love to talk about, and, and I you know I I know a little bit because I researched your your trip and just you know figuring out where to go and the amount of maps you had. What what was the experience like? Were, were things going to plan say two three weeks in, or or were you already facing a lot of obstacles? early on there were a lot of obstacles right from the beginning and part of those were self-created okay. uh, part of it in the sense that this would have been a lovely two-month trip right if i'd had two months if i'd had eight or nine weeks i could have taken the occasional day off i could have you know i'm just ah, i'm feeling a bit sore today maybe i'll just make this a four-hour day oh that's a lovely that island bad. i should camp there Maybe do some fishing, although I don't really understand the lure of fishing unless it's to eat. But grayling is delicious. Why don't we catch some grayling this afternoon? Why don't we hike up on that esker and have a look around and see what kind of animal tracks we can find. Maybe we can find a wolf den or something. But it wasn't. I'd really picked sort of the maximum distance that I could reasonably go. And I'd, I'd, I mean, I finished it, so I succeeded. But I didn't know that I would be able to succeed. So I was pushing myself right off the right off the jump pretty much as hard as I could. And my physical conditioning, <clears throat> I'll say my logistics were excellent. I, I pretty much nailed the preparation. And for anyone planning a long trip like this or any large anything, you can't underestimate the, the role that logistics plays. Logistics mm. is king. It is. If you don't well, – for example – how much fuel do you bring? Given that each extra ounce of fuel is going to slow you down, how much fuel do you bring? Well, the answer actually is 0.1 liter per person per day. Gives you a margin, but in retrospect, I could have gotten by with less because I wasn't having a warm breakfast. I wasn't making tea. I wasn't making coffee. I wasn't making soup. 
most evenings I would boil some water and have a hot dinner. So I probably actually could have gotten away with less. So, but I had a margin there. The logistics of connecting this river to that river, where do I get resupply? Do, or do I get resupply? If things go completely sideways, you know, let me make a list of every um, bush plane company within a thousand miles that could, and helicopter company, and then get their cell phone numbers so that I can text or call people to get me the hell out of there if something goes catastrophically wrong. You know, that's an afternoon right there. I was an afternoon on the phone, talking to different companies, finding out what kind of planes they have. Boy, they only have twin otters. That's going to be a really expensive evacuation for one person. Oh, this, these people here have got Cessnas, but they don't do external loads. So if I get evacuated by them, I've got to be willing to leave the boat behind in the bush, right? And then documenting all this. There's an afternoon. And that's just one of many, many, many logistical tasks they have to do. Actually, what I did, and I cribbed this again from Will Gadd, was a spreadsheet. So I had a spreadsheet. And one of them was you know, transportation. How do I get my gear up north? How do I get it back south? How do I you know, ship it with this company? How do I ship it with that company? Another tab would be about food. What food do I want? How many calories per item of food? Another was about the medical kit. What am I going to carry? Everything you carry is, uh, is extra weight. It's actually funny. When I start talking about this, you can really tell my audience is sort of the martial arts audience. They're all like, you know, Bring tampons because you could push them into a bullet hole if, if, and stop yourself from bleeding out. And <laughs> right, right. It's like, man. In case you get attacked. I, I, I appreciate where this is coming from. But on the other hand, you know, there isn't going to be a gunfight out there. They're coming, kind of coming from a bit of a paramilitary or some of them were coming kind of from military or paramilitary or policing point of view. And really, I mean, the main thing you need to worry about is infection. Different kinds of infection. Jardia. Uh, burns, cuts. Me, I have a few extra concerns because I did have a kidney transplant five years ago that stopped me from dying. So I had to carry some extra medication for that. But, you know, so a whole tab on the spreadsheet was medicines and first aid kit. And then another one was repair kit. Another one was, well, I included this in the preparation for the trip. How do I stop my business from imploding while I'm gone? Right? Who's going to handle the email? What videos get released when on YouTube? Very relatable concern for a lot of people, you know. You can't just oh, for sure. walk away from life. No, I, I, I'm I'm in the thick of it. I mean, my I got teenage kids. I got kids less than ten. I got a business. It took me, you know, like I said, I have to give a lot of credit for this trip to the ex-wife because she took the kids for a couple of months, uh, and to build that relationship took time. Yeah, and so. The logistics for a trip like this are paramount. The physical preparation, I was a bit hamstrung because I'd been dealing with elbow tendonitis for a couple of years. It hadn't gone away. I buggered my shoulder doing jiu-jitsu, not tapping out. You know, so I was caught. I was rolling with a guy, sparring with a guy who was lighter than me, older than me, not as experienced as me. And I was goofing around and he caught me in something like a shoulder lock. And I was like, I'm not tapping to this from this guy. Come on. And I managed to get out, but in the process, buggered my shoulder. I think I tore my supraspinatus. And so I went into this trip with my hip hurting, my elbow hurting, my shoulder hurting. I was like, man, how am I going to do this? 
and it prevented me from doing a lot of the conditioning that I would have liked to have done. So it was on the job conditioning and it made the, so that was the main concern of the first couple of weeks was the body just hurting as you're making the adaptation from, I'll say my cardio was in half decent shape, but muscularly and, you know, in terms of generating power and in terms of muscular endurance, I was nowhere near what I needed to be at. And so there was a lot of physical pain for the first couple of weeks as the body made its adjustment and I learned to tweak my paddling and I learned to tweak the things I did to not irritate the body parts that were, were not happy. And in the end, it actually ended up being good for those body parts. It, it turns out that the, you know, and I knew this in theory, but it's nice to know it in practice, the better your, your, the technique is on your paddling, on your paddle stroke, the less arms it is, the more torso and the more core it is. And so you're not actually irritating things like shoulders and, and elbows. So it was my form of rehab. So anyone who's got a bum shoulder or a bum elbow, what I recommend is a 50-day solo canoe trip through the Canadian Arctic, and you might feel better. There you go. That, that's all it takes. Just, just Useful days. advice. <laughs> so, you know, you were, I'm sure you were seeking solitude on this trip. Do you, I mean, how isolated did you really feel out there? Because anyone listening, I highly encourage you to just pull out your phone. If you're on a laptop, whatever, look at a map of this area. It is, it is out there. Did you enjoy that? Yes. Yes, I did. The solitude was a big draw of it. Now, I think fundamentally I'm an introvert and I really like the Myers-Briggs definition of introvert versus extrovert. So I am an introvert by the Myers-Briggs definition, which is that I, I'm perfectly capable of interacting with people. I'm not sitting there rocking back and forth in a fetal position at a party. But when I'm tired, when I'm run down, in order to recharge and reset, I like to be on my own. And by that definition, I'm by the definition put forward by the Myers-Briggs people, and that's the only Myers-Briggs definition I know, is that you know, that makes me an introvert. Whereas an extrovert, if they're feeling run down or feeling tired, they like to call up a couple of friends and go dancing or you know, go and hang out at a cafe where there's lots of people and engage and that energizes them. That doesn't energize me. So being alone, I found uh, amazing. How isolated was I? Well, there were really seven parts of this journey. There was down the Churchill River, a couple hundred kilometers. Then there was going upstream on the Reindeer River. Then there was crossing Reindeer Lake, which is a gigantic lake. It's probably 180 miles north to south. There's parts of it that are so wide that you can't see the other shore. The curvature of the earth hides the far shore. So that would have been the third leg. The fourth leg was heading upstream on the Cochrane River. Now we're getting pretty remote. Uh, about halfway there, halfway up the Cochrane, I met my last people that was at a native reservation called Lac Brochet. And so for the day after that, I saw a couple of boats in the distance. And then for the next 22 days, I saw nobody. So then the, the final legs were crossing over from the Cochrane river to the upper reaches of the Thle Louisa, which is a really obscure river which went downstream to Newton Lake, which is an amazing lake. It's one of the coolest lakes I've ever been on because the southern part of it 
is in the trees. It's in the boreal forest. And then as you paddle north, you paddle through the tree line out into the tundra. There's probably a 30-mile stretch where it makes that transition, and it's abandoned. Right? It used to be there used to be a lot of trappers there. There used to be a thriving set of fishing lodges that were there that have all been abandoned. So you find some pretty cool artifacts. And then the final leg was downstream from the from Newton Lake on the Thle Louisa down to Hudson Bay. So that was that's the seven legs of the journey. So I didn't see anybody for the last three and a half legs, the last part of the Cochrane River, the upper part of the Thle Louisa, Newton Lake, and the lower Thle Louisa. So that's that was 22 days of isolation, but it was not complete isolation. It you know I did have a sat phone for emergencies. You know, I called in to check on my dad. I called in once or twice to check on my kids. I had the sat uh, text communication through the Garmin. So I had a couple people I would check in with there, and I didn't really find that that changed the the, the main part of it. The m- bottom line is you're still isolated for 23 and a half hours a day. And then you send a couple of texts at the end of the day. Hey, everything's going great. You know, talk to you soon. So there, there was some connection there, but I don't feel that it changed the nature of the trip and the nature of the isolation and the, the general feel of it. And probably just added some safety margin, which is good because I was really pushing myself and I got skunked by the weather. It was good to have that communication there in case things went poorly. In fact, that inReach was always on me. You know, it was tucked in my life jacket. My life jacket. I had my camera, my Garmin, uh, a compass, fire making supplies, and a mosquito net. Just the thought being that if if I lost everything in a rapid, if my boat just got cracked in half and the contents a yard sail for the next hundred kilometers downriver, that I could still make it to shore uh, and survive for long enough to to get picked up. And thankfully, thankfully that didn't happen glad that everything you were able to complete the journey but you know i i was looking up something i'm not super familiar with this area i noticed a lot of rapids did you have to deal with some pretty hairy rapids because i, I know you're not starting at a really high elevation and you drop down what maybe a thousand twelve hundred feet over the course of the thousand miles but it seems like there was some big drops here and there well that's uh, not exactly true because yes you don't start at super high elevation you start about 1200 or 350 meters or some 400 meters something like that but remember that i was also going upstream as well as downstream so there were parts that i was climbing uphill <laughs> and in fact quite long sections because the entire reindeer river was uphill and the entire cochran river was uphill and so yeah you're dealing with big rapids there just going the wrong way um the nature of it I, i've done a lot of whitewater paddling here on the coast uh, on in the essentially the mountains of the the west coast and the the nature of rivers is quite different and this is often a source of miscommunication between eastern paddlers and western paddlers western paddlers kind of assume more or less ongoing rapids and if there's a bad rapid it's just an intensification of what's already there or maybe there's a little eddy above it and an eddy below it but by and large the mountain rivers continue kind of at a steady pace with the occasional bigger drop mixed in the eastern rivers the canadian shield rivers they're very much pool and drop it's very much lake 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 rapid lake 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 swifts rapid and so 
the same amount of elevation drop over a thousand miles. It's, you can't really compare that because 200 of those miles or sorry, 800 of those miles are either lakes or pretty flat. So it's, it's only in rare situations where you can say, okay, the next 50 kilometers looks like there's pretty much continuous current and we can look at the elevate the elevation drops and the contour intervals and predict how bad this white water is going to be. So there were definitely, uh, easy to run rapids. There were definitely times when, uh, you're basically running swifts for hours and hours. Although with the terrible weather for the last eight days of the trip, there are times that you're in swifts, you're in, you know, solid class one whitewater, which nothing to worry about, but you're going, why the hell am I staying in place? Why am I not going downstream? It's because the wind is blowing you upstream at the same speed as the water is taking you downstream. So then you're just careening widely, wildly from left to right. Uh, but yeah, there, there's definitely some good white water. Um, it's interesting taking a look at some of the people who've gone before. It was in, I believe, 1912 that one of the first white people to go down this river and document it. It was a white uh, guy out of, I want to say, Minnesota and an Ojibwe Indian. So it's Ernst Ernest Oberholzer and Billy McGee. And Billy McGee was an American Ojibwa. And they did this amazing, I want to say, like a 120-day trip that basically started north of Winnipeg, went up. I did the part of their route, but then they also paddled back south again at the end of it. And they took pictures. They're amazing. And they, you know, documented what they were going through. And when you take a look at what they were going through, sometimes the rapids are the same. Like, okay, that was difficult. And sometimes things they had trouble in, I had no trouble in at all. And sometimes I ran into big, dangerous areas that they didn't talk about at all. So maybe they didn't document it. But more likely, when you take a look at the, the giant walls of rock on either side of the river, especially as you get further north, where the, you know, in the spring, when all these lakes thaw out and you get these giant ice jams going down river, it just rearranges the river every year. So something, if, if you paddle it in 2018, you could go, oh my God, watch out for the rapids at the end of Casimir Lake. And then I paddle it the next year after the ice has gone out and basically rearranged the river and the riverbed. And maybe it's bad and maybe it's not bad. Really, the only thing that remains a constant are the bedrock controlled rapids, right? Rapids can either be formed with bedrock or with boulders. And up there, the boulders are anyone's guess. And I roll a dice or roll some dice and, and see where they, the new rapid is. Um, and then other people had paddled it. You know, Farley Mowat, the famous Canadian author, uh, talked about this river he paddled it, I want to say in the early fifties and, but he's a huge exaggerator, right? He'd talk about, you know, then cataclysmically did the walls of water smash together and threaten to reduce our canoe to kindling and you're paddling it and you're going like, no, no, it, not one of the rapids that he talked about being bad was actually that bad. Um, with one possible exception. So yeah, it's a combination of skills. I mean, here's the thing. If you're traveling alone, there's a big, huge difference between traveling alone in an expedition boat loaded with, let's say, 250 pounds of gear with help being, at best, a three-month walk away if, if you lose your radio 
and being out playing in whitewater in your tricked out kayak, right? I've run, I, I used to do a ton of whitewater kayaking, whitewater canoeing, and I was running class four, even class five. Um, but we were in a small group. We had safety gear. We're not that far from rescue. We had rescue gear. We're wearing wetsuits. We're wearing helmets. We're wearing elbow pads. There's a small area. You crack a boat. It sucks, but you know, you go buy another boat. So there you can push your limits and you go, I've got like a 50, 50 chance of doing this rapid successfully, but look at there's a great big pool at the bottom. No big deal. Whereas you, you can't use that thinking at all when you're up North because you break your boat in half. Like that water's really cold. You know, you, good luck. Like, and the river is maybe a, a mile wide. That's a long swim. And now you might, if a storm comes in, they might not be able to get you. You might be sitting there in the bushes for, this is assuming you've kept your radio comms. You might be sitting there for four weeks. And you know what? Zero. <laughs> there's years when nobody paddles this river. It seems on average, the river that I was on, one group a year paddles it, as best as I can guess. But you might be the second group that year. It could be a long wait. So if you know for sure you can paddle class four, now you're paddling not a whitewater boat. You're paddling a, a boat that doesn't turn very well, and you load it with a ton of gear, so that takes you down to class three. And now you have to add in that safety margin and stay a full step below what you know you can do. Now you're paddling class two. So you're, you're still screwing around in class four. You're, you might be lining it or you're attaching ropes to your boat and sending your boat down little rocky ledges with you not in it. You might be waiting or you might be paddling parts of it and then dragging your boat over the through the moss, over the moss, through the forest for parts of it. Um, but you're not out there for running tough white water. I don't know what the equivalent would be. Um, I'm trying to think of the climbing. I know what the equivalent is. You see some of the moves that people are doing in sport climbing or in speed climbing, right? Where they're running up those vertical walls in like five seconds, basically leaping upwards from hold to hold. Yeah. Well, you don't see Alex Honnold do that on the face of El Cap because he would die. <laughs> Right. right. It's a much more deliberate and he's he probably could go harder than what he did, but he didn't because the consequences are just so much higher. Did that answer your question about whitewater? I kind of went off on a whitewater rant. I think there was lots did. of whitewater and it was hard. I think it did. Well, you know, it obviously gave you a lot of time to think out there. Um, what, what would you say was for you the most enjoyable aspect of just being immersed in the experience for so long, like the most enjoyable aspect, just so separated from normal life. And then what would you say was the most challenging aspect? Um, just being out there so long. Okay. I think the reduction of life to eating and getting ready to eat, paddling and getting ready to paddle and sleeping and getting ready to sleep. The reduction of life to those three or maybe six things as opposed to normal life where, you know, okay, this email just came in and this, this guy absolutely needs this, but guess what? The contractor is coming by this afternoon to dump a load of, I don't know, I'm making this up here, dump a load of topsoil off for your garden. And guess what? There's an error message in your car and now your kid is sick and needs to get picked up from school, but your boss wants you to do that in real life. Cause that's not real life in real life. We're getting bombarded with conflicting tasks and priorities all the time. But out there, 
you know what the priority is. The priority is to get down the river without dying or get up the river without dying. Finish the trip without dying. That's the, that is your only priority really. And to do that, you need to set up camp. So sometimes, you know, basically what I called sleep. So sometimes what do you need to do that? You might need to fix your tent. You might need to hack out a little area of spruce on the side of a bay because you can't go any further that day. You might need to try and figure out how to set up a tent in a mud flat that it's not going to soak everything that you own inside. You need to travel, which is either paddling or wading or sailing or lining or tracking. And you need to get ready to travel. So that might involve fixing your boat. That might involve, uh, usually involves fixing things. <laughs> it, it might involve route finding, right? Where am I going to go tomorrow? Yeah. Where I think the winds are going to come from here. If I pick the wrong side of this lake, the winds are going to have 40, uh, 40 miles to pick up. And even a mild wind will just create these massive waves that will just smash me into these islands. So that's traveling. And then there's eating. You know, how do I cram enough food down my gullet to not lose too much weight on this trip? How do I, uh, you know, stuff my face full of food when there's one billion mosquitoes within two meters of me? Uh, the reduction of life to just a few necessities is an amazing luxury. And it, it kind of drowns out other concerns and other priorities. And just to, to be able to go through life life simplified for a little while is amazing in terms of the biggest challenge of being out there. Uh, this year it was the weather hands down the exposure on some of those large lakes. So reindeer Lake is humongous and Newton Lake is humongous and even a moderate wind can, you're just, you're just shorebound. You can't travel. Like the options are stay on shore or die. Even in a you know, canoe that looks a lot like a kayak that's got a spray deck on it, you know, you, you can't go out there. And if you did go out there, you wouldn't make any distance anyway. And towards the end, the weather got so bad. I mean, when the natives, when I met, the, ran into the natives close towards the end from Arvia, they were like, man, you picked the worst week of the year to come down this river. I'm like, that's I know <laughs> I was out in it. Uh, even on a little tiny widening of the river where it's maybe maybe a mile and a half wide, right? Maybe the wind's got a mile and a half to pick up, uh, to create waves and pick up speed. You're just not traveling. You, you, you break down camp, you paddle out of your little protected bay and you realize I could spend all day paddling in place here. It'd be like a treadmill. And the only thing that would happen is I'd be destroyed at the end of it, you know, turning around and going back and pitching the tent and waiting for the wind to drop maybe in the evening. So the, the weather made it really tough. And I think, although that being said, you know, a couple of the nicest days of my entire life were in that last week because there were eight days in that last week. I don't count real good. And two of them were perfect. Two of them were blue skies and tailwinds and six of them were horrendous. And those two nice days where you're paddling and you have current and a tailwind, what a luxury, tailwind and a current, and you're going through the various uh, the, the, the tundra landscape and there's hundreds and hundreds of caribou that are running on the ridges alongside you and then swimming across the river right ahead of you. And then seals that have swum up from Hudson Bay for a hundred miles, 150 miles. 
and you're sitting there going, remember this, drink this in, because this is going to stay with you for the, you know, you want this to stay with you for the rest of your life. You know, the next time you're stressed in traffic, think back to this and as a perspective adjuster. So although the weather was extremely challenging, just being, how about just being wet, wearing, uh, either polypropylene or merino wool with a raincoat on or a raincoat off. If you're tucked in bed in your sleeping bag, you're wearing it with a raincoat off. When you go outside, you're wearing your raincoat and you're like a, a knight in armor, right? You've got your hat, your raincoat, your uh, PFD, your, your, your life jacket, your gloves, and you're just barely warm enough for 12 to 14 hours of paddling. That, that was tough. That was a I mean, it's, I've been back three weeks now and I'm just beginning to feel normal. It's funny. I, I would go through this pattern after being back like, yeah, man, I can work out and I'd work out. And the next day I felt like I was run over by a truck, not for a hard workout. And then I'd slowly get better and I'd do another workout and I just feel again, run over by a truck. So two days ago I went for a hike, not a hard hike yesterday, but about two in the afternoon, it was like, I felt like I'd been up for 36, 48 hours. Felt like I'd fought this, you know, a giant never-ending house fire, which I hadn't. And just today I'm beginning to recover. So it, it, it's taking some time to, uh, not to adjust to being back in society. That was pretty easy. But to recover physically and probably like at a neurotransmitter and uh, hormonal level, just uh, pushing that hard and getting that little sleep and being that wet and that cold for that long. It, it's really taken a big chunk out of me. And so you say that the transition back into society hasn't been tough in the last few weeks? No, I, I wouldn't say that at all. It, uh, unfortunately, this is, again, something that I've tested in the past. And so I, I, I was fairly confident that it would work. Although, it's funny. You're out there. You're literally dealing with life and death issues, right? Like, if you run this rapid on the wrong side, you're probably going to die. If you screw up, um, you know, on finding the portage, you might die because there's a waterfall around the corner. If you load the shotgun wrong, because I, I did have a gun, because you're ending up in black, you're starting in black bear country, going into barrenland grizzly country and ending up in polar bear country. So I don't carry a gun every time I go out in the bush, but I do when I'm in polar bear country, you know. You're walking around with a loaded gun. If you screw up and there's one in the chamber and you fall, like you blow your head off. You could die. Like there's legitimate hazards. And you could get eaten by a bear too if you don't take the gun. So there are legitimate hazards. And then coming back into society where there's this rampant epidemic of fake safety. You know, you're in the airport and you're checking your bag. And they're like, do you have anything sharp in this bag? I'm like, yeah, I've got a hatchet. Well, like send you over to secondary screening. I'm like, the hatchet's got a sheath on it, and it's wrapped in a tarp, and it's in the middle of the bag. Yeah, but it could cut its way free and, like, fling its way across the airport and lodge its throat in a, you know, lodge itself in the throat of a traveler or an airport. I'm like, no, a hatchet isn't going to do that. Like, it, like, let's stop making up fake safety concerns here. And it's just, that was hard to handle when you have recently, you know, been had legitimate safety concerns but I should also point out, I mean, there's so many safety concerns. This this struck me. If you go 
So where do you live? Uh, what what part of you live in in Denver? Did you say? Yes, Denver. Okay. So I don't know how far that is. I'm guessing it's probably a 20 hour drive. So if I was to yeah. drive down to Denver, I'd spend a lot of time on highways without dividers in the middle, and I'd pass I don't know 10,000 cars. I'm making that number up. 10,000 cars traveling 60 miles an hour in the opposite direction, passing me two to three feet away, time after time after time. I don't know anybody in those oncoming cars. I don't know if they're high, if they're sleep deprived, if they're drunk, if they're fighting with their girlfriend. I know that they're texting and I know that they're surfing Instagram as they're driving. And yet when I say I drove down to Denver, nobody goes, oh my God, you could have died 10,000 times. But the truth is you could have died 10,000 times. And you take a look at the statistics, look at how many people die in society from car accidents. Everybody knows a lot of people who've either been horribly injured or died in car accidents. And, uh, yeah, I think that's a useful thing to keep in mind when we look at the risk levels of adventure sports. Sure. It's dangerous to be out there with polar bears. Sure. It's dangerous to be running rapids. It's dangerous to be out there by yourself. It's dangerous to be courting hypothermia by being out in, uh, an Arctic gale for hours and hours and hours, but we're also taking risks every day, especially with driving. Like the, the, the fact that driving down to Denver, I would be three feet away from either, well, either certain death or dismemberment 10,000 times. You know, that we got to keep that in mind too. That's a great point. You know, it, it's, I'm sure it's something you can share with your audience. And so what, you know, you say the transition wasn't terribly difficult. Gosh, how did it end just when you got to the bay? And, and, and then what, where did you go? Did you have something set up? I'm sure you did. But, but what did that look like once you finished? Because that's, well, that's, know, that's not easy either to figure out. That was actually the biggest. Okay, so just a little bit of context. I came out, the Thle Louisa ends about... 40 or 50 miles south of a town called Arviat and about 150 miles north of a town called Churchill on Hudson Bay. So in the past, I've paddled uh, about a 30 or 40 mile stretch on Hudson Bay from the mouth of the Seal River to Churchill. And that in itself doesn't sound so, oh, it's a big deal. The guy paddled on the ocean for 30 miles. I'll say that those three days that it took to do that or two and a half days were some of the scariest days that, that's the, some of the sketchiest outdoor situation I've ever been in. Hudson Bay is a beast. First of all, there are no trees, so the wind just picks up like crazy. Second of all, it's 10 to 14 foot tides, which is humongous, and it's five mile tidal flaps. So when the tide goes out, you've got white water going out to sea because it's got a, you know, it's a 14 foot drop over five miles. That's reasonably significant. And then when the tide comes in, you've got white water going in. And when you're out at sea, if you're paddling at low tide, you can't see shore. Like you can, your paddle can be hit in the bottom, but, and you're following a compass bearing going, man, I hope this compass is working. Uh, but you can't actually see shore. You're just paddling into grayness. And if a storm were to come up, and Hudson Bay is 800 miles across, I think. 800 kilometers, 800 miles. Anyhow, a giant freaking distance across. 
if an easterly wind came up, you would just be hammered with nowhere to go, right? You, you, you'd be in, in knee-deep water, just getting massacred by breakers. And then just to make matters worse, when you try to sleep, that section of coast has got a huge concentration of polar bears. And that's where all the polar bears live. They live on the Hudson Bay coast. And in the winter, they're out on the ice hunting seals. In the summer, they're inland, not eating much of anything, except the occasional paddler. So polar bears scare the crap out of me. And black bears, you know, you respect them. You could get hurt by them. Most people get hurt and killed by black bears, but that's only because there are so many of them and because there's so much interaction with them, right? Those are the bears you see at the dump. Those are the bears you see on the side of the road. Polar bears are humongous. They're 100% carnivore. You look like their preferred food, which is a seal, except you can't swim as good. And so that 30-mile stretch between the Seal River and uh, Churchill, which I did years ago, was terrifying. Because, you know, like I said, you're not sleeping. You're spending a huge amount of time battling wind and waves. And you're just worried about being out at sea because the storm could come up and you're worried about being on shore because bears could come by. Uh, and so this stretch that I would have had to do to get to Arviat from the mouth of the Fle Louisa was twice that. And I was prepared to do it because I'd had difficulty finding somebody to pick me up from town. I'd talked to the RCMP. I'd talked to the, uh, some of the wildlife people, not the right wildlife people as it turned out. I tried to get in touch with the Hunters and Trappers Association. I talked to the search and rescue people. And it was really difficult to find somebody willing to come, you know, sort of on speculation to pick up this crazy white guy uh, from a river mouth. Now, years ago, there was a guy called Joe Savikatak Sr. who used to do it. And your readers or your listeners will never have heard of him. But Joe Savikatak Sr. used to be the wildlife conservation officer out of Arviat. And he used to be the guy to pick up the occasional paddler. So he basically a side business a couple times a year. He'd go out and head up, pick up paddlers from this river, pick up paddlers from that river, drive them to town. So th the only references I'd found to him were all from a few years ago. I'm like, he's an old guy. I'm wondering if he's still alive. So I Googled him, Joe Savikatak Sr., Arviat. And I find out that he's now the premier of Nunavut. So he's like the governor of the territory, essentially. Uh, you know, like the governor of Idaho. Well, he's the premier of Nunavut. Like, okay, he's probably not picking up paddlers anymore. And so I tried to find other people to pick me up, and I just couldn't. And this was a, not a riddle that I solved by the time I left uh, on this trip. So my, I had two or three options. One was to call a helicopter company out of Churchill, burn my boat, and be picked up. And it would have been like $10,000 by the time I was done. The reason I would have burned the boat is because they couldn't take the boat. I didn't want the boat to get blown out to sea and then trigger some kind of search and rescue effort. Uh, you know, like lost paddler out on Hudson Bay who probably only survived for a couple hours in that water. Well, a couple, a couple of minutes in that water. The second option was to paddle all the way to Arviat, And I'm so glad I didn't like it's, it would have been a horror show. And as it turns out, the weather was a easterly gale which meant I would have been pinned on that coast, which meant I would have been right in the right in the ambush zone for polar bears. And really, there are no, the Inuit in that area, they'll happily head inland to live in tents and hunt caribou. And, you know, they're, they're quite comfortable being out on the land, most of them. 
there isn't one that would be feel comfortable being on the coast in a tent, right? They, they, they avoid that area. They'll be in a cabin on that tent for sure. So they'll be in a cabin on that coast. They're not going to be in a tent on that coast. Whereas inland, no problem. So eventually on the trip, I was like, man, I need a better solution than paddling to Arviat. And I called the premier, I had the, the premier's home number. <laughs> and I called and I'm like, I got his wife. I'm like, look, I'm so sorry. I know Joe is kind of busy right now being premier, but is there anybody else in town who can help me? And it turned out that his son was willing to come out. And so when I pulled up, I'm super professional. We were exchanging texts via satellite text. And he was like, okay, well, let me know when you reach this landmark and then we'll, you'll be a couple days more. So he, super pleasant to deal with. And then the day before I made the coast, I was 50, 50 kilometers, so that's 30 miles from the coast. I figured, okay, I've got current. I can be there by noon, especially if I get up at five in the morning. Got up at five in the morning and there was already a, a headwind. I was like, oh, crap. Except I didn't use the word crap. Um, <laughs> and then seven hours of paddling later, I made it to the pickup point. So we're, I'm updating him via satellite text. And they're like, we couldn't get close enough to shore because the tide was out. So they gave me the location of where they'd anchored out on the bay. So I paddled out into the mist. That's also a good trust exercise. I had their GPS location. So with a Garmin and a compass, I paddled out into the mist. And there's an occasional intertidal boulder. And eventually one of those boulders turned into a boat. And there were two people on the boat. So it was Joseph Ikitak Jr., the wildlife conservation officer, and senior the uh, premier of Nunavut, who was home for a couple of days and decided to come out with his son. So, yeah, I got picked up on Hudson Bay by the premier of Nunavut and his son, which was, uh, <laughs> it was, it was pretty funny. And then it was a three-hour, just really rough boat ride to Arviat, like just wind and waves and getting slammed in the face by ice-cold water. And the whole time I'm like, oh, my God, thank God I didn't paddle this. Thank God I didn't paddle this. Is this over yet? So... That was a huge hole in my logistics, but I did have the bottom line plan of, I, I did have the number of a helicopter company that was willing to fly out and get me for a huge amount of money because helicopters are crazy expensive compared to bush planes. And uh, I'm just glad I didn't have to invoke that option. Yeah, so my first contact back in civilization was a couple of guys on a boat and then the town of Arviat. It's a small little town, I'll say a couple thousand people. I, they got me to shore. I checked. There's two hotels in town. One of them had one room for one night. And so I booked that popular place, huh? Yeah. Well, it, it's, <laughs> it's kind of an administrative center for the territory. And then there's also some mineral exploration around there for, you know, uh, not oil and gas, but things like gold. So, you know, if, if those rooms are full, I would have spent another night in a tent, which I wasn't looking forward to at that point because I'd already made the mental leap like, okay, this trip's over. I uh, went to the one of the two stores in town. I didn't even get out of my rain gear. Just carried all my stuff into the hotel room. Uh, went to the store in town, bought a new set of clothes, and went back and threw out the stuff that I was wearing because I'd been living in it for like a week. It was threadbare. It stank to high heaven. Uh, had dinner, repacked, and then just collapsed and flew out the next morning. So it, uh, yeah, I think, I think I would have enjoyed if, if, if the weather had been nice on that last week, that would have been 
a stupendous piece of country because when it's when it's storming, all the animals go to ground, right? They're not going to be out prancing around in in horizontal wind and horizontal rain. They're going to be hiding in a spruce, you know, like a little Krumholtz grove somewhere. So I didn't see any polar bear. I saw lots of uh, signs of grizzly bear. Basically, if you build a cabin up there, sooner or later, a bear is going to tear it apart. And it's amazing to see the, the power of those animals, man. They can just demolish. You know, I laugh at your plywood. I laugh at your two by four studs. <laughs> Watch me tear it apart. So did you, uh, did you find what you were looking for out there with that experience? Yeah, it'd been a goal of mine to get up and see that country, to paddle Newton Lake, to do the Thle Louisa. There's just so much history there that I've, I've been reading about for years. So the goal was partially to complete it and the goal was to see it. And the goal was kind of to celebrate. I mean, it's selfish. I, I, I do. I release a ton of free content online. I don't know if you've seen any of the videos or the blogging or the, the podcasting, but that's all free. So you can make an argument that that's semi not selfish, but you know, five years ago, being down to 12% kidney function and getting up in the morning and feeling like I'd already been up for 48 hours, stumbling through the day and then going through the transplant surgery and then a, another follow-up surgery six months later, which is arguably more painful to remove the old malfunctioning kidneys. Yeah, pretty close to death. And as I, you know, 50 years ago, I would be dead. A hundred years ago, I'd be dead. 5,000 years ago, I'd be dead. If I was born today in rural Pakistan, I'd be dead. There are just so many scenarios under which that doesn't play out well. So I'm incredibly lucky to be born, you know, here and now. Uh, I don't know how much of your audience I'll alienate, but I'm a Canadian, so I'm allowed to say it. Thank God for the socialized medicine healthcare that we have, because I'm not destitute now. Um... So this is one Canadian's opinion about socialized medicine, but I'm really happy that we have it. And it, uh, you know, whatever problems there are with it, I'm super grateful. And so it was kind of like a, you know, hey, I'm, I'm not dead. Let's just celebrate being alive. Let's celebrate turning 50. Let's celebrate having survived. Let's celebrate having come through the tough times. And let's do something selfish for, you know, for 50 days, which didn't end up being 50 days. It ended up being 42 days because as just as you don't want to run the limits of white water that you're capable of running, right? If you can run grade four in controlled circumstances, you don't want to run grade four on an, on an Arctic canoe trip. Similarly, just because you have 50 days of food doesn't mean you want to go to 50 days on your trip because all it takes is one you know, the wind to go up by 10 kilometers an hour from 30 to 40 kilometers an hour and you're not moving or the wind to shift in direction by 10 degrees or the temperature to drop by five degrees or, uh, you to tweak your shoulder and it takes a week to recover. You, you get sick and you, you can't travel for four or five days and all of a sudden you used up your buffer. So just cause you have food for 50 days doesn't mean you should be out for 50 days. It means that you should be trying <laughs> doing everything you can to build up a safety buffer in case things go wrong. Cause in life, usually, you know, life happens as we were talking about earlier. And, uh, you, you want to be 
you want some kind of level of safety margin there. Absolutely wise when you're, you know, like you said, all those factors. So, you know, thank God, like you said, for your health care, that you're still alive, that you were able to do this and complete this successfully. Um, did, did it do anything for you in the sense of, I got to do something like this again, or is it just too soon being only three weeks home? <laughs> it's too soon. And honestly, I think the next time I do, I head up there, I'd like to do it with people. I, I got my solo, my, I mean, first of all, life returns apace. All the, the things that I put off and, you know, it, it took a lot of organization to do this. I still have those two jobs. I still have kids. It's not like I can bugger off and do this every year. So it's not even an option. I I think next time I head up into the Arctic, I'd like to do it with people. Um, I'd like to do it, you know, maybe with my kids. Um, I've definitely not the last time I'm going up there. I don't have the uh, the next big uh, box to check. I mean, there's the Canadian Arctic is a gigantic place. I would love to do the Kazan. I'd love to do the Back River. I'd love to do the Thelon and some of the tributaries that go into the Thelon, the Hood, the Copper Mine. I mean, you could, in my ideal world, had I bought world enough and cash, then I think I'd pick off a different Arctic River every summer and spend a month paddling that and then probably spend a couple months a year in some place warm in the wintertime and spend the rest of the time enjoying, uh, you know, the temperate climbs, but I, I don't have the next big thing on the go. I got to spend some time. Uh, you know, let, let me, let me feel hundred percent healthy first and then maybe I'll start <laughs> daydreaming about the next big trip that I'll do for my 60th birthday. Although, you know, I thought about, thought about a Greenland crossing. That would be, that'd be kind of cool to do an east to west or a west to east traverse across Greenland. But that would that would that would involve the logistics for that would uh, would rival and probably surpass the logistics for this thousand mile solo. So maybe we'll have another conversation in five years time about that. Hey, there you go. I mean, we'll we'll be around. You know, Lord willing, the creek don't rise. We'll be we'll be able to interview you for that too. So maybe satellite technology will have improved that we can do it live <laughs> from the uh, the old Dewline station. That's halfway across the ice cap. Hey, won't that be something? So, so how, how can people find out more about this experience and more about you and what you do? Well, if they want um, sort of the day-by-day -day, uh, blog format of this, uh, of the trip, if they go to grapplearts.com slash solo, that's where all those um, trip updates came and a whole bunch of pictures. It's, it's a bit long. I think I'm wondering if it's an embryonic book. I'd, have, I'd want it to be about more than just the you know, the trip. First, I did this thing, and then this other thing happened, and then I did that. I mean, that would be like the worst of the adventure sport genre, right? Like everyone's read climbing books of, then we did this wall, and then we cut over to there. And like, okay, that's useful, I suppose, if you're going to climb that same mountain. But what's the larger picture here? So if I could combine that somehow, something about achieving goals or setting goals and and overcoming uh hardships you know at the, at the risk of venturing a little bit into the we don't even want to say it the motivational you know area 
because I think there are lessons here. There's lessons here about keeping yourself going. There's lessons about planning something big. There's lessons about getting started on, you know, hacking items off your life list. Uh, so anyhow, the, the very, very, very rough form for that would be at grapplearts.com, which is my main site slash solo. Uh, I'm on Instagram. So Stefan underscore casting. Hopefully if you search for my name on Instagram, you'll find it. So if you look for the posts that I did from July and first part of August, late June, July and August of 2019, I was uploading photos live and commentary live from the field. So that's a good way to um, see what I was up to in the outdoor aspect of my life. I think those are the two best ways. Of course, if you're interested in uh, jujitsu, uh, look up what I've got on YouTube. If you uh, search for my name on YouTube, you should find one or two videos or you know, close to a thousand videos. That's awesome. Maybe you'll incorporate some lessons into, you know, your jitsu, jujitsu videos. And, you know, it, it's, it's very, it's very similar. Like the, um, whether you're starting a business or trying to get, finish your university degree or help a loved one through cancer or get your you know, black belt in jujitsu or do a thousand mile solo trip or whatever it is, you know, get a down payment to buy a house. These are big projects. And if the, the steps aren't that different, I mean, fundamentally you got to get started and then you got to keep going until you succeed, but you can get more refined about those things, right? My new favorite statistic, I'm reading a book called atomic habits. Have you heard of it? I have not actually. No. Okay. So it's not a very long book. It's not a very complicated book. But the central sort of equation of that book is that if you improve at something 1% each day, if you make the small little changes to improve 1% each day, then at the end of 365 days and the joys of compound interest, <laughs> you end up 37 times better than where you started. So essentially 1.01 to the power of 365 equals 37. Level 37. Yeah, level 37. <laughs> and so it's if you're saving money to buy a house, like every day, like what can I do to get closer to this goal that I wasn't doing yesterday? And if I can't do anything today, what can I do to set myself up for success tomorrow? Those that if you apply that heuristic to anything, uh, how do I get straight A's on my, in my last year of school? Well, what can I do to improve my marks today that I wasn't doing yesterday? Keep on doing the things that were working yesterday. And if I can't do anything, well, what can I do to set myself up that tomorrow I'll be 2% better, right? Like that, that persistence, I want to get my black belt in jujitsu, which is a tough job. Like that's eight to 10 years. It's not like getting a black belt and, you know, having 12-year-old black belt Taekwondo kids running around. No, it takes eight to 10 years of really hard training multiple times a week. And so how do I get my ass to class? And if I can't make it to class, what else am I doing? What am I studying? What am I, what techniques am I breaking down in my head? What uh, am I doing for conditioning? What am I doing for rehab? Uh, you know, I, like if you're a rock climber, Oh, geez, I can't make it out on the, the, the hill today because it's you know sleet. What can I do? Well, there's a gym. 
there's a rock climbing gym. If that doesn't work, then there's probably rehab. You probably have injuries. How can you rehab those injuries? How can you train your brain? What video can you watch? Surely there's somebody out there who's blogged about, I don't know, uh, I'm, I'm outside my area of expertise here, the optimal angle of the ice pick tip for climbing certain kinds of rock. Like how can you get better than yesterday by just a little bit? And you do that again and again and again and again and again, and you'll be completing your own thousand mile solo trip in no time, whatever your thousand mile solo trip actually looks like. Mm. Yeah, that's everyone can get up and do something and mm -hmm. might not seem significant like you said, but little research here, little, little step here. It just builds and builds and builds. And, uh, yeah, you didn't get a cry. That's one thing you didn't not do is just sit there and paddle each day. Something that a lot of us can do. You know what I'm saying? It's just a matter of doing that over and over and over and For sure. figuring out you know, making sure the you, bloody boat isn't going to paddle itself. That's right. You know, you write a book, you write, you got to write, you want to paddle a river, you got to paddle, you want to do anything. It takes doing that. I'm sure thing. that's a common theme among the people that you talk to. Like I, you know, the value of persistence, the, you know, <laughs> too dumb to quit. <laughs> that's uh, yeah, some goes of a long them. way. Some of them, but, uh, they, they makes good stories at the very least. <laughs> Well, Stefan, I really appreciate you joining me, uh, joining us on the show and man, what an adventure and, uh, yeah, congratulations once again. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on the show. It was a pleasure. All right, Stefan. Thanks so much and have a good day, man. Okay. Take bye. care. Thank you so much, sir. All right. Bye. Well, first of all, thank you so much for listening to this episode. It really means the world to us that you want to spend your time with us. If you'd like to help us further, please just leave us a review on iTunes, share us on social media, tell your friends about us. You can become a patron, a supporter of the show for $5 a month at patreon.com slash adventuresportspodcast. And if you know somebody that would make a good guest, reach out. We're always looking for good adventure and outdoor stories. And lastly, thank you to our sponsors whose messages follow right now. Athletic Brewing makes the best non-alcoholic craft beer. Go to their website at athleticbrewing.com and use the code in our show notes to save 15% on your first order. After all this adventure talk, if you're needing some gear yourself, but you need some advice before buying, Go to BackpackTribe.com where you can ask questions to the owners who have experience with all the gear as well as all of it for sale right there on their website.